You're listening to Divorce Happy Hour with your host, Christina Previtt. And John Nocklinger. We're two divorce lawyers from New Jersey here to talk about love, life, and divorce. Whether you're thinking about divorce, going through one now, or been there, done that, or if you're just a divorce voyeur, this show is for you. To learn more about us and our law firm, you can find us at centraljerseyfamilylaw.com. You can also find us on social media. Just search for NJ Divorce Solutions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know if you like the show or hate the show and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Please keep in mind that this show is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to take the place of legal advice. If you need legal advice, please call New Jersey Divorce Solutions at 732-384-1550 and mention this program for a free consultation. Welcome back. Today on the show, we have back Dr. William Capagna, Ph.D., who is a psychologist who has served as a forensic expert in hundreds of custody evaluations over the past 25 years. He's joining us again today to continue exp- uh, giving, our, uh, giving us his experiences in evaluating families during divorce. And today, in particular, we're going to talk about custody agreements and what should or should not be in custody agreements. Basically, don't sign it. Don't, Don't sign, sign it. it yet. Well, you have to add the yet. Yes. Make sure we'll sign it someday. <laughs> okay. Not yet. Well, it's like, don't <laughs> sign it dot, 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 yet. <laughs> All right. So before before we get to that, there's a couple uh, interesting articles out there today that uh, we thought Dr. Campagna could um, opine on to some degree. Sorry to spring this on you, Dr. Well, can't C. can't you ever give me these in advance? <laughs> no. That the, would take all the fun out of it. <laughs> okay. So the, this first one, I, this first one I, do think, uh, I do think you're not going to have any issues with this. And something Christine and I talk about quite frequently when it comes to my daughter who's about to turn six. The headline of the article is, Why You Should Teach Your Kids the Real Words for Private Parts. Yeah. So this article talks about the fact that... Maybe we should have given Dr. C some advance <laughs> notice on that well, one. Well, why? Just, just, <laughs> yeah. What's so, the rationale in the article? So, I'm not saying I disagree. I'm just wondering what's the rationale. Yeah, I'm going to read a little bit. So yeah. body parts are body parts are body parts, uh, this uh, psychologist says. And emphasizing that words like penis, testicles, and vagina are not bad words. That they're no different than talking about your elbow, your knees, your knee, or your nose. And that there's several reasons that children should learn the proper terms for private parts instead of nicknames. One is that having the right language and context helps kids communicate clearly about their bodies. For example, if something hurts or they're in some kind of pain, they can more specifically tell you what's going on. It, and it helps them better prepare them to talk confidently about changes they may experience as their body grows. And uh, also, whenever you avoid saying those words, sometimes it instills a sense of shame, according to the psychologist, yeah. and sense a sense of shame, and that these words are something to be avoided or hidden. I, I think those little baby names for private parts makes the parents feel more comfortable. It has nothing to do with the kids. Yeah, I think this. They're time. the ones that have issues, not the kid. Well, I'm guilty. I mean, we still... Then t- you have issues, John. <laughs> well, no, I don't, I don't use... I mean, the next part of this is avoid cutesy language. We don't have cutesy language, but we just call it your privates. Like, we don't, you know, we don't talk about it. But, you know, what's interesting, my daughter has started to ask me what it's actually called. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So she knows that it does have a name and that you guys aren't using that name, right? Because otherwise, know, I, why would I she have asked? I kind of agree with the psychologist now that I had a chance to think about it. Um, but I don't think one thing precludes the other. In other words, um, you know, not using the correct name does sound a little shady. 
In yeah. other words, you know, why can't we call a penis a penis or whatever it is? Um, but the idea that there might be parts of the body that are private is also mm-hmm. not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, you you don't you won't walk out um, you know to in the middle of of company with no clothes on. Um, why? Because parts of the body are private. That's I mean, to me, um, a good social skill that we want to teach children. <laughs> but that yes. doesn't mean that you're not going to name things. Um, and I agree with you that a lot of this focuses more on the parent than on the kid. I'm not comfortable with the word X, so therefore I'm going to call it a boo-boo or something else, whatever mm-hmm. it would be. Um, that's, the child doesn't have that prohibition or that concern. So I, I kind of agree with the with the author of the article, but that doesn't mean you can't teach that some things are private. Yeah. Well, but you know what? If you make up names for them, you're not necessarily teaching them it's private. Just making up some other, like boo-boo, isn't indicating that it's private. Well, and, right? what's, and I would say that probably a lot of these adults that uh, come up with these nicknames, myself included... It's probably because our parents did that to us when we were yeah. little. And so it's like this ongoing, I don't know, shame cycle about that these words are somehow dirty words that we shouldn't be t- saying in public. That they're, I don't know, overly yeah, sexualized I, I, I or can, something. Yeah, I can. You know, I, I believe it's because the parents aren't comfortable using the words. Yeah, I think so. Okay, but look, let's, let's be honest. If, if you insist on doing that, I don't think the child will be irreparably damaged. Oh, if you've made up the names? Yeah, probably, nah. I don't I'm, think I mean, it would be. I agree with the, with the author of the article, but on the other hand, let's, this whole sense that the child will somehow be imbued with shame might be a little bit of overstatement. Yeah. Just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. So, moving on to uh, the next article that Christina found is that Kelly Clarkson told her kids that mommy and daddy made their Easter baskets, not a bunny. So the purpose of this article is that Kelly Clarkson said, I love this quote, I kind of was like, mommy and daddy did these things for you. I always knew my mom did it. Maybe don't show it to these children. I thought Easter was for us. Sometimes I'm tired of giving credit to non-existent things. Like I'm very busy and I took the time to shop at Target and put all this together. She's sharpened at Target. I did this. Who doesn't no bunny. shop at Target? Well, yeah. I did this. No bunny. They got chocolate, so they're fine. I love this article. I do. I like it, too. Because I, you know, just having Easter recently, um, and my family is not overly religious, so it's Easter bunny, which I think the Easter bunny is kind of like Santa Claus to some degree. It's kind of a yeah, secular Yeah, it's, it's all the item, same. The tooth right? fairy. Yeah, the tooth fairy. What else is there? But, you know, we came in, and the first question my daughter asked me is, did the Easter bunny come last night? And, of course, what am I going to say? No. She did? Yeah, she did. And she comes in and she actually thought the Easter Bunny laid these eggs everywhere. Well, thank God you had something for her. <laughs> I know, right? But you know what? Kids like to use their imagination. I don't see anything wrong with with that. Plus, all the other kids in school, or most of the other kids in school, um, believe that these things exist. Well, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses don't... Um they don't observe those holidays. The, the the practices like the Easter Bunny and Santa. They don't do. They don't celebrate birthdays. I wonder why. Um, I don't know the logic behind it, Doctor Companion. I think I might have actually had a case with you one time where someone was Jehovah's Witness. We we did, mm-hmm. but the the, um, the Easter Bunny. 
Um, I'm willing to go out on a limb, and I'm going to assure anybody who's taking the time to listen to this (laughs) that if your child believes there's an Easter bunny, he or she will not be psychologically damaged, stunted, or in any way negatively impacted. This is just silly. (laughs) Um, Now, I, I understand the concept of teaching a child that we do things for him or her, and they should appreciate the things. On the other hand, we have to understand that children appreciate things developmentally, that there are ages at which the concept of knowing somebody else is doing something for me may be a little bit more difficult to inculcate than at another age. That having been said, believing in Santa, which is the same thing, yeah, or the Easter Bunny, just it, it's simply a fantasy. It's a pleasant fantasy. It's in no way sexist, developmentally inappropriate, hostile. It's nothing. To, to, to suggest that we can't allow the child to have that fantasy is just plain silly. What? I mean, come on, guys. It's trickery. I, I, really, really. <laughs> I, I just, um, there's nothing psychologically inappropriate about believing in an Easter bunny. Well, I will tell you that I will continue to believe in Santa as I get older. As long as Santa brings me something. I think that's developmentally inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's an attorney. It's very pragmatic. (laughs) Very pragmatic. If I believe in you and you bring me something, I don't care whether you're real or not. Right, right, exactly. Well, I think I've heard it referred to as that fun time when there's childhood innocence, right? Where they're just children and they get to, like you said, they get to live in that fantasy world where everything's wonderful and <laughs> there is no stress. It's but, prob- but, but tell me what's wrong with it. Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with it. The Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy. Don't forget the Tooth Fairy. Oh, yeah. Yes, the Tooth um, Fairy. You know, I mean, really, if, if <laughs> explain to me something that is developmentally inappropriate about this. You can't. There's so, not. Uh, yeah. No, I don't say so, that. Sometimes people have too much time on their hands. So you're saying Kelly Clarkson has too much time on her hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, I'm going to say it's selfish. The same reason they want cred- they want to take credit away from the Easter Bunny. It's for themselves. Okay. <laughs> selfish. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. So moving on to today's topic, uh, don't sign that custody agreement yet, which I think is a very good, I guess, new topic uh, title for this episode. Uh, so, Dr. Capania, I know that you have been engaged in helping people put together custody agreements for many, many years, and you've seen just about every kind of provision that should or should not be in a custody uh, agreement. So I don't know where we should start, but maybe we should just start with the uh, the top line of what's in most custody agreements, which is what how we define custody and the provisions that say who gets custody. So when you're looking at those provisions – you know, what are the kinds of things that you... Yeah, what would, do you do? Yeah, what would you tell people to look at? Well, f- first, just to set the stage, if I might, just, just um, the, the, the concept here is that people who are getting divorced are under a certain pressure to settle. That settlement pr- pressure comes from a variety of sources. Their own exhaustion, financial realities, mostly their exhaustion, is one. Um, oftentimes the attorneys are encouraging them, come on, let's settle. You're sent to mediation, 
and the mediator's job is to make a deal, is to settle the case. How it's settled is a secondary issue. Let's settle this. And let's be honest, judges also would much prefer a case settle and move off the docket. So there's tremendous pressure. People sitting out in the hallway at the courthouse who are kept out there on purpose <laughs> so that they'll settle um, are just so exhausted that oftentimes they don't think it through. Or nobody takes the time, and this is the professional's fault, no one takes the time to even explain to them what it is they're signing. You know more about a lease that you sign than sometimes you do about a, uh, a marital settlement agreement. So remember, there's tremendous pressure, and I'm not suggesting you shouldn't settle. But what I am suggesting, there are certain ingredients, certain preliminary questions, and certain concepts that people need to understand, because very often they sign it, they're exhausted, let me out of here. And it's not that they have buyer's remorse, it's that they didn't understand. So later on, when they think they know what they're doing and what they can and can't do, they're wrong. And that's because nobody explained it to them. So when people come into my office for an evaluation, the first half hour is spent with them staring at me while I give them my opening spiel. And a lot of that is focused on what needs to be in a parenting plan, the questions we need to ask, and definitions. Well, Dr. Capena, let me stop you real quick, because very few people in a divorce where there's a custody dispute or even if it's not a dispute and people enter into an agreement uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, cooperation, they don't go meet with a psychologist more often than not. So let's back up and let's look at someone who isn't going to go meet with you and is not going to get this 30-minute presentation by you of of all these things. What are the things that you think they, sh- you know, what should they do? Not We're not going to go through each provision right this second, but what should they do? Should they just look to their attorney? Should they just read it over and over again? What is it that you would recommend they do so that they can enter into this agreement a little bit more, with a little bit more uh, acknowledgement of what it says? Well, aside from paying close attention to us during this um, uh, show, they, they, you know, basically you don't need to come and see me or someone like me. I would hope that some professional would sit with the folks, I would hope they're attorneys, before they even start the process, and at least tell them, at the very least, what things mean. And that clients should ask. So if you're well, listening no, to this... They don't. I mean, you know, clients are under Well, but for stress. whoever's listening to this, ask. Oh, sure. Uh, of, of course. But they don't necessarily know what to ask. For yeah. example, every time I hear somebody use the word custody, I think to myself, what are they talking about? And if I ask them, they never mean what I thought they meant by it. So the most misunderstood word is the word custody. Uh, No one knows what it means. Do people think it means all kinds of things it doesn't mean? It means things they don't know it means. Uh, They think it has something to do with parenting time. I want custody, meaning what they mean is, I want the children with me more than with you. Well, it's not custody. That's parenting time. But um, people don't understand what legal custody is. Um, I try very hard to only use the word custody 
in conjunction with legal custody. And legal custody applies, the way I present it, only to issues of significance. Surgery is a legal custodial question. Um, Whether or not I buy french fries at McDonald's during my assigned parenting time over your objection is not a legal custodial question. Um, People don't realize that. And when there's hostility and they have joint legal custody, they think everything is a custodial issue. Um, I give you a hundred examples. So the first thing I would suggest to people is if you're going to have probably have joint legal custody, which uh, I forgot the percentage, but very frequently that is the case. What does that mean? Have the lawyer explain to you what does that mean? What does it not mean? What do I have to do if we have joint legal custody? What do I cannot expect can happen if we have joint legal custody? Is this a legal custodial question? Is this a legal... I I once had an argument not too long ago with a gentleman who was insisting that it was his assigned parenting time and his, um, his ex had no right to object to him going skydiving with the 10 year old. And I tried to explain to him that that's not an arbitrary parenting decision. Um, jumping out of an airplane probably is a significant, he, he wouldn't agree with me, but of course he was wrong. Was that a so, recent case? I think that might have been something you and I, that sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, no, th- this, this was, I don't believe it was a case, but it, see again, people, you've had this experience, yes. they don't understand that if this event is of significant impact on a child, there has to be some kind of collaboration of decision-making. Um, or, conversely, and this is something I see when I do parent coordination with people who are not getting along and we're trying to help them get along by having a middle person, um, they think legal custody applies to everything, everything, no matter what it is. Uh, a, a, a dentist appointment can't be made without my permission. Um, the snack, who gets the snack for the child's birthday in school, becomes a legal custodial dispute. Well, it's not a legal custodial matter. So that's the first thing. Get well, the attorney to explain to you what, cust- what legal custody means and what it doesn't mean. Well, doctor, uh, but let me stop you right there because I just want to make sh- ask you whether you think that most attorneys even understand what legal custody means. Because well. I sure hope they do. Well, because basically we're assuming that attorneys understand it in order to explain it to their own clients. Well, I think normally what they do is they just say custody. I think everyone just says custody. They don't say joint. They don't say legal. They don't say physical. They just say custody. But, but Christine, what they they mean is they don't mean when they say he got custody, she got custody. They don't mean legal custody. They mean they're the primary caretaker of the children. Yeah, I think generally what people mean, too, when they say that is that, well, I'm the one that gets to dictate everything because I have custody. It's not true. Well, no, but I think that's just a common misperception. Okay. So, so that's the first thing I would suggest to people. If you're going to have joint, legal, joint custody, understand that custody has nothing to do with parenting time, parenting time is defined as who's on duty. Are you on duty or am I on duty? That's time. And that is the thing, by the way, as you know, 
that most about which most people argue during settlement negotiations. Yes. Everybody yeah. wants time. I want Tuesday. All right, I'll give you Tuesday, but I want every Thursday. Now, I'll give you every other Thursday, but I want every Christmas Eve. See, it, it's the um, parenting time, which is not the most important thing in a case, usually is the only thing about which people argue. And because it's a quantity, it's easy to argue about it. Okay, it's, it's a quantity. Even a judge will say, Sir, I'm going to award you this parenting time. Ma'am, I'm going to award you that parenting time. And my blood boils because you're being awarded something that doesn't belong to you. Parenting time belongs to the kids, not to the parents. The purpose of parenting time psychologically should be to allow the child to strengthen and develop the bond with the parent through interaction, presence, and being cared for. The way the legal system tends to look at it is it's a prize given to the parents, to the litigants. It's my parenting time. And let's face it, that is how the legal system approaches it. So, um, but that is the thing that, about which most people fight. When they come in my office, they're not interested in who's going to be the primary caretaker or can we co-parent. No, they're interested in, I got to get, my attorney told me, I got to get this many overnights for child support. Yes. Yes. That's And of course, you know, how far that gets with me. But, but that's pretty, that's it. So, the parenting plan is about much more than who gets every Tuesday or how the parenting time is divided up. That's a huge problem because when you're fixated on time, not only do you lose sight of the overall best interests of the kids, it's so easy to come up with the screwiest parenting plans that are equivalent in time, but place the child in ridiculous situations of Monday with me, Tuesday with you, Wednesday with me, or it has to be 50-50. Or, um, yeah, I know I live 90 minutes away from the school, but I need my overnight every week. So the kid has to drive an hour and a half in the snow in the morning to go to the school. Um, or people come up with, mediators also, come up with all kinds of screwy parenting um, time arrangements that are not designed to address the age of the child, the convenience of the child, the comfort of the child, the child's activities. No, it's case on the fact that, well, this parent has to get this many overnights. And let's face it, that happens all It happens all a lot. Time, it yeah. happens a lot. I, another thing that I see people bring up a lot is, well, I want to be PPR, parent of primary residence which in some ways is, is sometimes related to the child support. But other times, I really think it's just a power struggle for one to have just a little more than the other. It becomes about power. Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, I try to avoid terms that are in any way confusing. So I tell people in my office, we're not going to use the following terms. Visitation, because you visit the zoo. You don't visit your parents. <laughs> you visit somebody in jail. You mm-hmm. don't visit your parents. No. Two, we're not sometimes a parent is in jail. Custody, residential custody, or parent to primary residence. Because you know what? Do you know what they mean? Because I don't. All right? Parent of primary residence doesn't imbue, when you hear it, the real duties 
what the person wants to be or should be or will be or is being appointed is the primary caretaker of the children. That's the point. They're responsible ultimately for administration for non-legal custodial day-to-day routine decisions. That's the, the, the purview of the primary caretaker. Haircuts for boys are the purview, in my opinion, of the primary caretaker if you have one. That doesn't mean that the primary caretaker has to take the children. The other parent can take the children. The kids can cut their own hair. The point is, it got done. The primary's job is to see that it gets done. So, Doctor, and, doctor let me ask you this. In, when you're talking about how people don't understand what these terms mean, would you uh, suggest that perhaps the agreement define what the terms mean, actually define what legal custody means, define what the responsibilities of the parties are vis-a-vis how much time each of them are going to have with the children, who the primary caretaker is, what their responsibilities are? I would. I mean, qu- quite frankly, usually the um, the custodial part is sort of memorialized in the boilerplate that comes off the computer when you type it. Um, what's not usually memorialized in the boilerplate is um, you know how we're going to divide up responsibilities. Usually, it simply says that Party X will be the PPR primary uh, parent of primary residence or physical custodian or something like that. Um, very rarely, when I look at marital settlement agreements, very free, very infrequently are the duties of that person because they're so broad. It is difficult to kind of boil them down in in an agreement. The important thing is that the parties understand. It's not complicated. I, it, believe me, if I can explain it to people in a minute, you can too. It's, it's simply that you have to have a primary caretaker, and I give them an example. If we have joint legal custody of our child, and the child's going to be in the orchestra in school, and you want the child to play the xylophone, and I want the child to play the tuba, and we go to court, the primary caretaker will prevail. Okay. Now, again, it's, that's a ridiculous example, but it, it, it makes the point that if it's a non-legal custodial issue, the primary caretaker, because they have extra responsibilities to make sure that things are signed and things are submitted and so forth, has that discretion in non-legal custodial areas. And that took about 30 seconds, and it pretty much explains the job of the primary caretaker. Yeah, but I think that the, I think that the issue comes up that one party will be advised by an attorney who knows what these terms actually mean, while their spouse is being told something different. And so they're having this fight. Well, my attorney said that that is something that you have to agree with me on. No, my attorney said it's not. I think that like perpetuates a lot of the disputes that people have is their attorneys are telling them different things. It may be. Um, I, again, that would be something I, you would know better than I um, in, in terms of that. I don't have that problem. I simply have people that are clueless. They, they, they simply don't know. Um, or if they ask the attorney what they relate back to me, the attorney said, may not be accurate. Um, uh, but, but again, the point is that the people, however it's worked out, if you're going to sign something and you're going to agree to be the primary caretaker or not be the primary caretaker or whatever you want to call it, you darn well better know what your job is. And the other person needs to know that it's because I agree to you being the primary caretaker, 
You are not the general, and I'm just the sergeant. The primary caretaker doesn't issue general orders that effective immediately every Saturday. This is the regimen of activities, and you must do this on your assigned parenting time. No. People yeah, that, believe that. That's typically what I see the major struggle to be. In, in a lot of cases is, you know, I'm just going to generalize because it does go back and forth. It could be mom trying to dictate everything that dad does or doesn't do during his time. You know, he may be just have a different parenting style and mom wants to dig. And then sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes it's dad. I had a case like that once where it was dad and he was very, very regimented and he wanted the kids in bed by a certain time and their rooms had to be perfectly neat and they had to eat healthy. And, you know, he was like, I think he actually was former military and the mom wasn't like that. She took them to McDonald's and, they kind of put themselves to bed and they had very different households and very different parenting styles. And that was the really big problem. Well, you you brought up another important issue, um, that of defining parenting time. What does parenting time mean? Um, Mm -hmm. Parenting time, there's autonomy of parenting time. In other words, if I always ask people when they complain that something happened, I say, hold on, who's on duty? Okay, who's who's has the assigned parenting time in this incident? Okay, not you. So what are you doing? What do yeah. you mean you're telling the kids you're off duty? Okay, you you cannot now with texting. It's very easy to interfere with the other person's parenting time. Texting is not a blessing. No, kids, that's been a because problem. you can really interject yourself right into the other person's parenting time. And parenting time is more than just my time with my kid. Parenting time, psychologically speaking, is not only the opportunity for the child to, to increase the, and, and um, uh, reinforce the bond, it's also for the child to feel comfortable now that mom and dad are getting unmarried and we now have, instead of what I call one backyard, now we have two backyards with two different sets of rules. And if you don't have autonomy of parenting time where the children know who's on duty, it's very confusing and anxiety-provoking for them. Well, I'm not allowed to, to do this. What do you mean? Well, at, uh, Mom or dad says I can't. Yeah, but that's at mom or dad's house. We have different rules here. Um, yeah, but then, you know, mom could be saying, oh, you know, don't eat that at your dad's house. You know, you know you're not supposed to. Well, <laughs> again, she, uh, mom could say it's bad to eat um, double-stuff Oreos. Um, that's junk food. All right. Um, she can give, I mean, he, whichever parent can give their opinion. But, um, you know, the, the idea is if it's too strident, and this is a whole other issue we can discuss some other day, but if it's too strident, it does put the child in some conflict because little kids think something is either right or wrong. So either it's right or wrong to eat double stuff Oreos. Mm. And if well, that's interesting. there's a, a huge collection of those at the other household and everybody's chomping on them, the child is in some conflict. But that's kind of another issue. The child still still needs to know who's making the who's in charge. If the child's in the classroom, very few kids will tell the teacher, "Well, 
I'm not going to do that because at home I don't have to do that. The kids never say that. The kid knows in the classroom who the hopefully who's in charge. Yeah. And that gives the child a sense of security. They know where the fence is in the backyard. Uh, they know how to act in their yard. The same is true with parenting time. You have autonomy of parenting time where the parent, the on-duty parent, is responsible for making discretionary child care decisions. If the other parent doesn't like it, that's a co-parenting problem, which hopefully the children will not be dragged into. But it has to be clear, and this is very difficult to be off-duty, if you really feel the other parent is incompetent or in some way lacking in parenting skills. It's also very hard to be off-duty if you have an overly developed and inappropriate sense of possession of the children, that these are my children. You can borrow them, but you have to give, like my lawnmower, but you have to bring it back. In other words, they're not being parented by you. You're just sort of... They're hanging letting, out with you. I'm, I'm letting you see them because I have to. I never really thought about <laughs> it like that. Do you think that children having their own cell phones exacerbates this problem? Look, there's no way around cell phones. We could, we could, go, we could have all the studies we want. <laughs> Every, the kids are going to have cell phones. Um, the, the idea is, I mean, on the other hand, you can trace cell phones. You can look at text messages and, and, and so forth. But no matter what we do, kids are going to have cell phones. Um, Generally, if we have a situation where the off-duty parent, if that's the method of their intrusion, the cell phone, um, hopefully we would address that in some way, or the parent coordinator could address it, or maybe the judge if it was brought to the judge on a motion or something. Um, but th- there's no way around the cell phone. There's, there's simply no way around it. But you can still trace text. Many times I'll get the text messages, which the person says, oh, I'm not interfering, and you get the text messages, which you can print out off the phone. And you're saying, well, what do you mean? Look at this. So um, the, the text message is a great way of interfering. It's also a great way of not interfering. It's also a great way of innocently telling the kid that you love them, reminding the kid that you're st- young kids that you're still present, but not being intrusive. What about the people that always want something written into their agreement saying, I get to FaceTime, you know, little, little Susie once a day or at okay. bedtime? Okay. Um, well, again, it's good to be specific. It's not good to be overly specific. People will fight um, many times. I will bring up things that I really think, because remember, I may do an evaluation and make recommendations, but I'm not writing the marital settlement agreement. And lots of things are left out that I may feel very important. But uh, people will go into great detail, particularly about financial matters. One of the things I mentioned, I think, to Christina earlier was, um, we'll put in there that whichever party is assigned the day of the birthday party invitation, that party is responsible for buying the present. And, and that's got to be in there. But other stuff, which is much more important, co-parenting, whatever, no, no, forget it. Let them cross that bridge when they come to it. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. You folks can't agree what day today is. You're not going to cross the bridge successfully. Don't worry about it. We will. And 
oftentimes they're back in my office again fighting over the very thing that I suggested. Um, sometimes overly specific things are difficult. There are certain things that are written into marital settlement agreements that are chronically problematic. So, and what One are of they? them is <laughs> FaceTime. Really? <laughs> yeah. FaceTime, particularly in high-conflict cases, um, that's a great way. No one's home. Nobody answers. I called mm-hmm. 11 times. What about then when they they're really little, back. like two? Yeah, yeah, you're Those right. are that's, the ones I never get. Like, but, but, how can you carry on a phone conversation with a two-year-old? Well, again, that's just quite silly, okay? Um, but if you have older children, psychologically, um, especially since maybe you haven't noticed this, but nobody talks on the phone anymore um, with kids, um, FaceTime is better. I mean, having a visual presence for a kid is better than trying to just talk on the telephone. I'm not arguing that. What I'm saying is it's a nightmare in high-conflict cases where people can't co-parent, and I have to define co-parenting, but who can't co-parent, who can't maintain sufficient neutrality in their relationship to simply make things work. Um, That's co-parenting. They can't do that. Well, FaceTime is a nightmare. The other nightmare is birthdays. When the marital settlement agreement says that birthdays have to be rotated or both parties can see the children on their birthdays. Yeah, you're talking about the parties' birthdays. They get the children on their own birthdays. (laughs) I've had people arguing over Christian holidays when they were Jewish. Well, okay. I mean, you know, there's actually more rationale to that over Christmas, for example, as a secular holiday than it is to my birthday. Because mathematically, when you're sitting there and you've got three kids, all of whom have birthdays that fall on a different day of the week each year, and you have to figure out a way for both parents to see them on a school day, mind you. It's a little easier if they have a birthday that falls in the summer. Well, then people should conceive their children then. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. So if you're listening to this and you don't have children yet, just be careful of, of when you conceive them. Well, <laughs> hold on a minute. Wait a minute. If you have it in the summer, and um, my vacation, which is another thing that they never define what a vacation is, but I'm away. I booked my summer house the last week of August. And guess whose birthday is in the last week of August? Yours. Mm-hmm. Now what do we do? Okay, you see, and so birthdays, I really, I know it sounds like a small thing, but when you try to parent coordinate in cases, it's much more difficult. Now, if people can co-parent, you know what they do? They celebrate the birthday on the weekend before and the weekend after, which makes much more sense. That's the logical thing to do if the birthday doesn't fall on a convenient day. Yes, uh, so kids won't object to having going the birthday back, party. You know, kind of related to the Easter Bunny conversation, are they going to be challenged in some way developmentally if they're not, let's say, their own birthday? They're not seeing mommy and daddy both on their birthday? Oh, I mean, come on. Okay. Please, now. <laughs> of course not. You think the kid is going to object to have two birthday parties? No. And and, no. and get something not. on their actual birthday. During the school year, almost no child celebrates their birthday on their birthday. Thank you. I mean, it just doesn't happen. That's but it's life. in the agreement, and I want it. I get a few hours, it, and it. you get a few hours. Last year, I want it this year. And um, it, it's just 
again, it's one of those things when people can't co-parent. Now, most people are more reasonable than this, and they can co-parent. They can have sufficient neutrality in their relationship to be sufficiently flexible to allow the plan to work so that their, their marital settlement agreement isn't 5,000 pages long. Um, with every conceivable possible convoluted possibility. Um, but, again, this is another problem. People put stuff in there that's kind of unnecessary, and they don't include things that are radically important. So they don't know what parenting time means. They don't understand what legal custody means. They don't understand if you have a primary caretaker or whatever you want to call it, what they do. They, they don't understand, they have no concept of flex, what flexibility is. In an, there has to be flexibility. We can't have a plan that has every conceivable contingency enumerated, and therefore you have to be able to co-parent. The professionals can usually predict who's going to not, how many parenting plans are going to work. These people, it's just not going to work. We, we know that. My concern are people who may not have high-conflict cases, who may be simply, sincerely wanting the best for their kids, who aren't sufficiently guided, and they're almost set up for failure because they don't know what things mean. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand that if I'm off-duty, I'm off-duty. I can't show up at the soccer game. I can go to the soccer game to support the kid, of course, but I can't say to the kid, hey, get your friends, we'll go to Carvel now and have ice cream. <laughs> you can't do that. But I meant well. I just wanted to be with my kids. I thought I was doing the right thing. You were being nice. You, your intention was good, hopefully. But you can't do that. You broke the rule. You're off duty. So many times people don't know the rules. That angers the other person. And it's simply unnecessary. Yeah, because so I'm they... kind of aiming this not at high-conflict cases, the people with whom I deal. I'm aiming this at everyday people who are sincerely trying to work out their agreement so they know what's yeah. in there. So they know what the expectations are. Because then the other parent, I've heard this a million times, I'm sure you have too, Oh, he comes and he tries to be the hero. It's my time, but he's the one that you know comes waving ice cream cones, and all of a sudden he's the good parent. Um, I hear that all the time. I'm sure you do too, John. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, again, um, that's a co-parenting issue uh, that um, it really falls in the realm of the relationship between the two litigants um, that you can't possibly, you know, um, sign an agreement that says, I won't annoy you. What you can do is construct an agreement that's thought through so that even though I annoy you, things that could be avoided have been avoided. So if I, I, I don't have, I didn't sign an agreement that says you can move 20 miles from my house, which is the craziest thing I've ever heard. 20 miles, is the, it's not as the crow flies, it's as the car drives. 20 miles could be um, 15 minutes on Route 78. 20 miles could be two and a half hours into Pennsylvania. Yeah. No, 20 miles. That is the, another thing. It's, it's, it's not the point. If you're going to put some sort of um, geographic limitation, the point is 
how long does it take the children to get from point A to point B? Not how many miles it is. Miles are irrelevant. It's travel time that matters. How many agreements have you seen with travel time? I've never seen any. They're all 20 miles. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. always 20 miles. And, we, and like you said, in New Jersey, that can mean anything. Absolutely. But, but, I think I've referenced time, travel time before. Oh, you have? Well, yeah. you're smarter than I've, smarter I've than said most. the intention is that there would be approximately 30 minutes travel time or whatever, whatever the time was. That's good. So when you're talking about how sometimes specific provisions can be problematic and then we need flexibility, what's your position on how specific the actual language surrounding the parenting time schedule should be? Um, I, I'm a firm believer that's an easy one, okay? If you have a schedule, if you have to be at work at 3 o'clock, you'll work at 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock doesn't mean 3.30. So when you, we're giving a parenting time schedule, you can enumerate specifics. Now, if my car breaks down, if I'm just late and you know I'm chronically late because I'm just a doofus, calm down. But the, you know, you know, it, we'll live with it. But the schedule itself should never be vague. It should never say Tuesday morning, Sunday evening. Oh heavens, no! That's that's primed for. Even if we get a what about well Tuesday now, morning drop off at daycare or Tuesday morning drop off at school? Okay, well, if you if obviously if some things are, are axiomatic. If you say a Tuesday morning drop-off at school, the implication is that you're going to get to school, the children to school on time, on time, nine a.m. And then you have to dress the summer. Um, Sunday evening. How about Sunday evening? Yeah. When when does what does that mean? The children I, will be returned. I on can't Sunday believe people evening. actually do that. The implication is that you and I will be able to work that out. Yeah, but I mean, I, I have I have done that before with people where it was pretty amicable, and we would just say the specific times will be agreed between the parties. Yeah, I mean, and, or you'll see people say, pick up at mom's house after school. Okay, listen, again, at least it stipulates after school. I'm always looking out for high-conflict cases, just yeah. what I do. Well, so you would I'll, see I'm, those, I prefer, yeah. I'll, I'll give you another example. In the summer, both parties, will be awarded two weeks vacation. What does that mean? First of all, when is the summer? Number two, what's a vacation? Summer recess three, from school. Wait, That's what I, I say. Can I take vacation days like at work? Um, if you want the same week as me, what are we supposed to do? Can I take two weeks in a row? Um, is a, when does a week start? Does it have to start the same day? Can I start it on a Tuesday after my Monday? You know, now, again, you'd say, well, these pe- reasonable people can work it out. Well, aren't contracts to avoid that problem? They're, they're specific enough. I always define every. I define everything. Nope. I define what a vacation is. I define when the summer starts and when it ends. I define what a week is in the summer. And I define a holiday, what a holiday is. I think that's really, really smart. I'd say the summer parenting time or summer vacation time is one of the most contested issues after people are divorced. And people do cutesy little things like they'll say, well, it was my weekend from Friday to Sunday, and now I get a week of vacation. And basically expand their vacation to 10 days. The other problem that I always see, doctor, is where people don't take into account that there's going to be summer camp. 
maybe athletic summer camp or other summer camp, and then you have vacations as well. So then people are fighting about, well, I already paid for summer camp, and the other person's like, well, I get vacation time, and so you start fighting about those things. Well, there's two ways to avoid that. Um, I always ask people, what do you do in the summer? And I point out to them that summers are much tougher than during the school year because there's no babysitting. Right. You have to do something with the kids. And if they do utilize summer camps, I ask them, okay, now hold on now. So if you're dividing up the week and you don't live near each other, you're paying for drama camp, and the young girl is a budding dramatic actress, and she's going to be very upset if she misses drama camp. But she's going to miss two days of drama camp because of the assigned schedule. Maybe we should address that ahead of time and have, sometimes I recommend this, a different schedule in the summer. Um, We have a school year schedule and a summertime schedule that addresses the summer camp issue. It also sometimes facilitates vacations because you can take a vacation during your already assigned time. And it doesn't, a vacation is defined as a period of parenting time, which supersedes the other person's regular time temporarily, which is not dependent upon travel away from your residence. So if I have a vacation next week, you, get no, you have no assigned parenting time, and I can sit in my, in my attic if I want to. Um, mm-hmm. it's, my, it's vacation time. Um, it, it's very simple. You can't take vacation days. You have to take a week at a time, or whatever we decide. A week at, you have to take from Sunday to Sunday at 8 p.m. That's a week in the summer. Okay, You can do what you want. The other person's parenting time is suspended. You can go travel as long as you're back, 8 p.m. on the following Sunday. Um, also, you can stipulate in the parenting plan, I do this sometimes, the date by which we have to trade um, parenting uh, proposals for the summer. So let's say both, both parties should be assigned two weeks from Sunday to Sunday at 8 p.m. in the summer, which is defined as beginning on the first Sunday after school ends and ending on the Sunday before school reopens. Um, a week goes from Sunday to Sunday. Both of us get two non-consecutive weeks. By May 1st, April 15th, pick a day, the parties have to exchange their proposed weeks for the summer. If they're late, if the email is late, the person who submitted it on time wins. Or if we both want the same week in the summer, in even years, party A prevails. In odd years, party B prevails. I love now, that. Everybody laughs at me and says, who cares about this? But i got to tell you, that solves more, more problems than you can imagine. Yeah, I think that's I think it's absolutely wonderful. What are your What are your feelings on holidays that like fall on a, like a Monday or a Friday? Can well, what's the definition of a holiday? A holiday de- de- is defined as a date of particular significance, which supersedes the regularly established parenting plan. So you may get every Thursday, and Christmas falls on a Thursday. You don't get every Christmas. Okay, we have a separate holiday schedule. Um, there are major holidays and there are minor holidays, obviously. Um, but if, if it's a mo- what I call a this major Monday holidays, which would be Labor Day and Memorial Day. Um, we can do this any way the parties want. The problem is, if you consider it to be a full weekend, a lot of people go away 
from Memorial Day weekend or Labor Day weekend? Well, if you assign the weekend, if you define Labor Day as beginning on Friday and be ending on Monday night, and it's my, it's my Labor Day, and I had assigned on the regular schedule the Sunday before, the weekend before, and the weekend after, I now get three in a row. And, of course, the other party goes, goes ballistic. So this, you have to think this through with the parties ahead of time. Do you understand that if you want to do this, some years you're going to get three in a row? you understand that? Okay. Or you can say, no, forget the weekend. A Labor Day or Memorial Day is, begins on, when does it begin? Sunday night, ends on Monday night, whatever it is, and we alternate it year to year. You could do that, too. A lot of times with vacations, I'll ask the people what they want to do. I'll ask them about Christmas, okay? Some people, um, for all kinds of reasons, want Christmas Eve. They don't so much care about Some people want Christmas Day. Sometimes you can broker a deal. Okay, you get every Christmas Eve. You get every Christmas Day beginning at 10 a.m., and one year the child wakes up at your house, one year the child wakes up at your house. Next problem. If you ask the parties, a lot of times they, they'll give you input for, for Christmas, vacate Christmas break. If your family lives in Chicago, let's say, and you want to see them at Christmas time, well, I need to know that ahead of time so that when we set up the plan for the Christmas break, you have enough time to get back and forth from Chicago on your years. Um, so, again, if you sit with the people, and this takes time. I mean, you have to sit with them and go over it in detail and explain to them. Now, you understand if you do this, there are years someone's going to get three in a row or whatever it's going to be. You do it that way, you can solve a lot of but it takes time, and frequently nobody has the time to do that. No one sits with them and, you know, micromanages their vacation. If you do it, though, i got to tell you, it solves a lot of problems later. Absolutely. Well, Doctor, I think if people listen to this show and take what you're saying to heart, they can save themselves a lot of aggravation um, in the future by drafting agreements that actually have real meaning and taking the time to sit down with their attorney who can explain what terms mean so that it minimizes disputes between them and their ex as they move on in life and co-parent these children, which at the end of the day, you're divorcing a spouse, you're not divorcing your children. And what's most important is that they are not caught up in the whirlwind of your dispute. Well said. Thank you. Well, thank thank, uh, Dr. Capena again for coming on today. And if you'd like to hear the last show that we had with him, which was equally wonderful, please go over to divorcehappyhour.com and you can find his past podcast along with all the other podcasts that we've done on a variety of very interesting topics. If you have any questions about what you've heard today, you can give New Jersey Divorce Solutions a call at 732-384-1550. And the moral of today's story is you need to understand what you're signing before you sign it. This isn't like a mortgage where you just sit and you sign on the dotted line wherever someone points to you. You need to actually understand what you're signing 
because if you don't and you just sign something, you're going to be upset. It's going to cause disputes later on, and that's not good for your kids. And if you care about your children and you care about making sure they have a healthy uh, relationship with both you and their other parent, it's important that these agreements are understood. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.